You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth Chats. Today, I'm speaking with Noam Chomsky, the distinguished theoretical linguist, analytic philosopher, and cognitive scientist. Called the father of modern linguistics, Chomsky helped bring about the cognitive revolution in the human sciences. Closer to Truth is presenting this four-part miniseries with Professor Chomsky. Part two now is Chomsky's theory of linguistics, background, breakthroughs, contributions, and challenges. Noam, uh, great to see you again. Let's start with uh, core ideas of generative grammar, hierarchical structure, and transformational grammar. What's the basic ideas and why, the when you put it together, was it considered disruptive? Well, you have to look back at what the uh, consensus views were at the time. In psychology, uh, the consensus views were one or another form of behaviorism, mostly radical behaviorism. Uh, in linguistics, the standard view was Leonard Bloomfield, the major linguist of the uh, structuralist tradition, as he put it, language is a matter of training and habit. Pretty much the same view in philosophy of language. Uh, Quine, the leading figure in American philosophy of language, held that language is a complex of dispositions to respond to stimuli. He went on to say through operant conditioning. If you go over to say Wittgenstein, leading figure in European, uh, analytic philosophy, uh, take a look at it. He didn't give theoretical descriptions. He gave examples monthly. This is the later Wittgenstein. Uh, his, you look at the blue and brown books, philosophical investigations, his discussion of how language develops is through training and ostension, pointing things out and saying, this is a rock, and then training people and so on. That's basically it. So that was the psychological aspect. On the linguistic aspect, there was a well-worked-out consensus, articulated clearly, sophisticated ways. Uh, linguistics is a taxonomic, was called a taxonomic science. Classificatory science uh, was based on procedures of analysis, sophisticated, well-worked-out. Zellick Harris's were the most theoretically extensively developed, you could apply these procedures to any cor corpus of materials and you would find the elements of the language and the way they are organized and distributed. That was basically the field. Notice there's no theory and no explanations. You don't explain things. A generative grammar took the opposite view starting in the early 50s that we should try to find explanatory theories that account for the phenomena of language. So for example, if you take uh, two sentences, John, John is easy to please, uh, John is eager to please. 
and one of them, John, is doing the pleasing, and the other, he's being pleased. Why? Why does it work that way, not some other way? Or take a very simple example. If I say, John and Bill are here, why don't I say John and Bill is here? Bill is actually the closest noun phrase to the copula, so why doesn't it agree with that by adjacency? Uh, notice there's a very deep point. The, this is known by infants as early as you can test, as uh, 17 months. As soon as you can test them, they know that agreement is based on the structure, not on the linear order of words which if you think about it is quite an astonishing fact, means that the infants are ignoring 100% of the data presented to them, which is words in linear order. And they're attending only to something that they never hear, namely the structure that their mind creates. Uh, this is a trivial example, but it extends universally. Turns out that all rules in all languages ignore 100% of what we hear and attend solely to the structures that our mind creates. That's an amazing paradox. Problems of that kind were discovered as soon as the effort to make develop explanatory theories arose. Now that's the early 50s and on. From that point on, there's been the basic theoretical problem has been to deal with a certain conundrum. What's called universal grammar, the language faculty, the fixed language faculty that we share, has apparently has to be very simple because it emerged very quickly in evolutionary time. We didn't know this in the 50s. This was unknown until recently. But in recent years, it was pretty clear by then, but now it's clarified. Uh, language seems to have emerged almost instantaneously at a very recent period. Uh, humans have been around maybe two to 300,000 years. Uh, they began to separate about 150,000 years ago. Before the appearance of humans, there's no evidence in the archaeological record for any anything other than the most trivial kind of symbolic behavior. After humans appear, you have a flourishing of rich symbolic behavior. So you put all this together, and notice that these numbers are instants, flick of an eye of evolutionary time. And so what you have is creature emerged, some small change took place in the wiring of the brain, got a new set of cognitive capacities, hasn't changed since, that's humans. So it strongly suggests that this cognitive faculty must have been something very simple. On the other hand, when you look at language learning, it was understood 70 years ago. Now it's understood with great clarity, plenty of evidence that languages, language capacity is attained very rapidly with very little evidence almost instantaneously. That's true of word meaning, sentence meaning, so on. It all springs into the mind on virtually no evidence, which 
more or less triggers some internal capacity. Well, that makes it look as though the internal capacity must be very rich to carry you from the very sparse data to the rich knowledge. So you have a conundrum. Evolution suggests the language faculty must be very simple. Acquisition, learning indicates it must be very rich. Uh, we have the other problem that languages seem to be very diverse. Well, the course of theoretical work has been to try to work our way out of this conundrum. I should say I'm not expressing a consensus view. This is my personal view. Probably not too many others accept it, but you asked for my views. Absolutely. We would not expect anything less. And this is, uh, I think we've now finally reached the position where we're beginning to find genuine explanations for the first time, which satisfy the condition of evolvability and learnability and show why diversity is superficial. I think that's the achievement of the last few years for the first time in the 2,500 year period of extensive study of language and mind. I think mm -hmm. it's a real potential breakthrough. In terms of understanding the, the structure and the hierarchies, uh, where does the transformation come in? Wh 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 why is that necessary? I know the, you talk about three levels, the syntactic or the, the structure. I don't know if you call it deep structure anymore, but, but the, the lowest level and then the externalization through our speech faculties and different parts of the cortex and, uh, and then the internal kind of thought associations. So between these areas, these structural areas, what is the transformational part? Well, transformations were devices that were developed, I'll go back to the 1950s, as soon as the problem of developing explanatory theories was initiated, it was addressed and the program was initiated, it was immediately recognized that we understand almost nothing. Every sentence you look at poses new problems. And it was necessary to try to develop descriptive devices that would be rich enough to at least describe the phenomena. Transformations were critical to that. You want to account for the fact, let's take the sentence I mentioned, uh, John is easy to please. We want to be able to account for the fact that you can also say, uh, John is easy uh, for people to try to please. But you can't say uh, John is easy for the man I met yesterday to please. Uh, doesn't work, you know. So some things work and other things don't. When you try to work that out, grammatical transformations were a device that were able to do that. Uh, phrase structure grammars, which tried to show how pieces were put together were another device. Both of these devices were far too rich. They were enabled you to do things that were impossible. If a theory, there's two ways a theory can be wrong. It can fail to achieve what you in fact observe, or it can do too much. It can account for things that don't exist. Those are the two flaws that theories can have. This cuts pretty deep, I should say. Mm. So there's a lot of excitement these days about deep learning. 
a lot of headlines in the newspapers about the amazing things that uh, machine intelligence can do. It tells you nothing. The reason is it's far too rich. It does. It works exactly as well with impossible languages as with actual ones. So therefore, it tells you nothing about language, mm-hmm. nothing about thought. Mm-hmm. It's useful. Mm-hmm. Google Translator is useful, like a bulldozer is useful. Mm-hmm. But it tells you nothing about language, mind, and thought. Mm-hmm. Well, the same is true internal to linguistics. So things like transformations, phrase structure rules, actually did way too much. They enabled you to describe systems that can't exist. Mm. Uh, Therefore, the effort has been over the years to refine and limit them so that they do exactly what does exist. That means making them much simpler, more constrained, deeper, uh, more general, a long process. By now, all of these things are gone. There are much simpler principles that show that there are, these are sort of great-grandchildren of the original ideas. They keep being honed, developed, and so on. But by now, we can show, I think, that very simple computational processes, which must exist if a language exists at all, uh, are sufficient along with principles of computational efficiency to account for some quite complex properties of language. It's a kind of a new stage in the field where it's really reaching the level of genuine explanations and dealing with that conundrum that I mentioned before. Your famous phrase, colorless green ideas sleep furiously has almost entered uh, popular culture. Uh, what was the uh, origin of that phrase? What, is it, what does it do? Why is that important to uh, exemplify the, the uh, linguistic theories that, that you've put forth? Well, that was one of the series of examples which somehow hit the popular imagination, which were simply designed to show that the existing theories, Quine, Bloomfield, uh, Wittgenstein, everybody's, uh, just couldn't work. So in Quine's, in the one standard view, Quine expressed it clearly, is that grammatical sentences are those that are meaningful. Okay, here's a grammatical sentence that's not meaningful. But the point is, it is grammatical. There's not, I mean, we feel that sentence can't, should make sense. No. I mean, revolutionary new ideas appear infrequently, has the same structure. It's perfectly meaningful. Right. Little screen ideas sleep furiously, doesn't have a literal meaning. I should say this has been massively understood. So there's a long literature of people using it to write poems or uh, give it metaphoric interpretations. <laughs> that just reinforces the point. <laughs> the point is it doesn't have a literal meaning. Anything you produce has some kind of meaning. Even pick words at random have some sort of meaning. But the point is it does not have a literal rule-governed meaning. Furthermore, another standard view at the time based on the information theoretic revolution was that grammatical sentences are those that are 
have a close statistical approximation to actual English. Well, here's a sentence where the statistical approximation is about zero. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. If you do a Google search now for colorless green ideas, sleep furiously, you get a million hits. <laughs> On the other hand, if you do a for if you do it for uh, colorless blue thoughts uh, uh, appear commonly, you get zero. You know? <laughs> the reason it's all that sentence, you know, it's, it's, so statistically now it's very high. But uh, the point is, it it violates the idea of statistical approximation of meaningfulness and the idea of frames. The other idea was famous was that frames determine like a noun phrase a verb and so on well it doesn't because here's this one which has the same frame as as perfectly fine ones but uh, doesn't work so uh, th so these were examples many of them just showing that standard views don't work so we have to look different at a for a different approach. Let me give you some of the critiques that uh, you have uh, absorbed and uh, refuted uh, or attempted to refute it over the years. I picked out just a few. Just give me your reaction. So one of them is that it's the, a universal grammar is evolutionary infeasible. Another says there's a lack of universal characteristics between languages or among languages. Another said there's an unproven link between innate and universal structures and stru structures of specific languages. So th those are some of the broad categories of, of theorists who uh, a a attack your, your view of, of universal grammar. Well, the, the critique about evolution has led to the invention of uh, terrifying ideas like monster mutations and mega mutations and how unfeasible they are, which is true, they are unfeasible. That's why the proposals are for very small changes. So you'll take the book you mentioned with Bob Berwick. We discuss how a very small rewiring of the brain, very small, might yield large scale uh, effect. The book is Why Only Us, the Language and Evolution. Excellent book, I might say. Well, a lot of the critique is based on a misunderstanding of evolutionary theory, which was common 40 or 50 years ago, but has long disappeared. Uh, there is a line in Darwin which is mistaken, which is, had been taken very seriously. Uh, if you read Origin of Species, he said, that his whole theory uh, rises or falls on the principle that all complex uh, developments in organic life develop through very small changes over a long period, just accumulating. That was believed for, through natural selection. That was believed for a long time. It's kind of a neoclassic picture. It's totally false. It's now known that many other factors enter into evolution, radical sudden changes, uh, mutations which can have major changes. Uh, it's called symbiosis. So let's take uh, eukaryotic cells, complex cells, which are the basis for complex organisms. Uh, they develop because 
some bacterium by accident swallowed another microorganism, which led to a restructuring, sharp restructuring of the nature of cells. Then you get complex systems, which over time become complex organisms. Things like that happen all the time. A lot is known now. Natural, in fact, if you look at evolution, it basically goes through three stages. A one stage is just disruption. Something changes. Maybe a small mutation, maybe a transposition of genes, maybe a symbiotic, uh, something like swallowing another organism, something happens. Second stage is reconstruction. Nature takes the new system, reconstructs it in the simplest possible way, following fundamental principles, laws of form, physical principles, and so on. The third stage is, you could call it winnowing of the array of things that have been developed in the second stage, which ones are better adapted their natural selection enters. But that's a winnowing procedure. It's not the main process of evolution. And by now, a great deal is known about that. Now, in the case of language, there was no monster mutation, no mega mutation. It probably happened as a very small change in brain rewiring, led to these new systems, never changed. Language never reached the winnowing stage for several reasons. For one thing, the time is too brief. For another reason, the new system that developed is so intricately organized that it just can't change. It's either all or none. You change any of it, it all falls apart. That's the way it increasingly looks. So it's all perfectly consistent with ordinary evolutionary theory, leading evolutionary biologists of find no problem with it. But if you totally misunderstand Darwinian evolution, it looks impossible. So that's the first change charge. The second one has to do with whether the variety of languages refutes it. Well, not to our knowledge. The lang- I mean, if you just look at the phenomena of language, yeah, sure, they seem to refute everything. You look at the phenomena of organisms, they seem to refute all of molecular biology. Everything looks different. When you just look at the phenotypes, everything looks wildly different. But it's long been known in the sciences that that doesn't mean a thing. I mean, if you look at leaves blowing in the wind, it seems to refute the theories of motion. Okay, that's why physicists don't look at leaves blowing in the wind. Uh, They try to look at what are called experiments, any experiment, is a radical abstraction from the world of phenomena. That's why you do experiments to throw, try to throw out phenomena that are not relevant to whatever it is you're looking for. It's not easy to construct a good experiment. Uh, the early days of the modern revolution, experiments were mostly thought experiments because actual experiments would never work. So take Galileo, it was commonly believed in his time that, uh, and you know, a child will believe that a heavy ball uh, will fall faster than a white ball. That's experience, it's wrong. Uh, Galileo showed that it was wrong by thought experiments. 
if he tried an actual experiment, it would have failed. Uh, you put a, a ball at the top of a mast of a sailboat that's moving forward. Natural assumption is if the ball drops, it'll drop behind the mast, except that it doesn't. It drops at the base of a mast. And that was shown by thought experiments. If they tried an actual experiment, it would have been refuted. Hmm. You have to have very refined experiments to make it work out. Well, that's science. If you abandon science and just say, well, let's look at all the phenomena, they seem to refute everything. Sure. They refute physics, they refute biology, they refute linguistics, it's all <laughs> nonsense. That's been understood for 500 years, <laughs> except in fields like linguistics and social <laughs> sciences. So you have to understand the nature of science before you begin these critiques. Now, maybe there is something in some language that refutes a principle of universal grammar. In fact, that's happened over and over careful study of particular languages has shown properties that in fact were different from what had been assumed in the general theory of the faculty of language. That's called progress. It leads to modifying the theories, often deepening them so that they deal with those phenomena as well as others. Well, that's the way science progresses, but not by saying well, here's a language I looked at, which seems to have some weird thing. How do you account for that? That's nonsense. That's like saying I found an organism that doesn't seem to fit molecular biology. What do you say about it? What you <laughs> say about it is let's look carefully at the organism and see if it's true. Let's talk about uh, a deep structure and surface structure, which is uh, part of your original formulation of linguistic theory. In fact, it's what got me excited about it, you know, more than 40 years ago and see how my, that might apply to other areas. I was into neuroscience at the time. Um, and, and then during the mid nineties, I think you changed and you brought up what's been called the minimalism approach. Uh, uh, just take me through deep structure, surface structure, and then the minimalism of logical form and phonetic form and what were the motivations for the original deep structure and why the, 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 diff the, the change? Go back to the 60s, one plausible position, it's called the standard theory, was that, uh, the, uh, that there are uh, principles that construct what was called deep structure, which then get semantically interpreted and then other operations turn them into the surface form and those get phonetically interpreted. Looked like a reasonable picture. It's now known, but it's not true. Uh, surface effect, it was discovered pretty quickly that so-called surface effects also affect the meaning. So there's a difference between the uh, many arrows hit the target, the target was hit by many arrows. They have different meanings but it's the surface that's determining it. Mm. Honificational words, that's almost always true. So it turns out that it was discovered very quickly that uh, uh, the surface does affect the meaning. So if I say John reads many books, it can mean John was a voracious reader, you know, 
if I say many books are read by John, it means certain specific books. Doesn't mean he's a voracious reader. Mm. Maybe he reads biographies, you know, or something like that. Well, things. If I say many books are easy to steal, again, it means specific books. If I say it's easy to steal many books, it means robbery is easy, you know. Well, uh, things like that were discovered pretty quickly. So that deep surface structure distinction fell apart. And what has been discovered, I think, now, the picture today, which seems to be correct, is that there is an internal system which just generates thoughts, and it has no connection to externalization into a sensory motor system. Actually, the example that I gave before of structure-dependent rules demonstrates that. Uh, it means that Remember that the child is ignoring everything it hears, 100%, words in linear order, uh, and only attending to structures that its mind, cre mind creates. That's from the earliest days, runs all through life. That's the way all constructions work in all languages. That tells you that linear order of words and other surface arrangements are really not part of language. They're, they're not part of the internal system that is generating thoughts, uh, the system that amazed Galileo when he recognized that with a finite number of symbols, we can construct infinitely many thoughts. All of this has nothing to do with the way words are arranged in linear order. That's a very interesting topic, but a different one. It's a, it's a topic about how the internal system is mapped onto sensory motor organisms, like uh, the mouth or in sign language, the hands. That's not part of, that's a, an amalgam of language and sensory motor systems, uh, but they're just separate systems. Well, that gives you, that means the deep and surface structure just disappeared. Mm. Uh, we have a much simpler system of just elementary computational operations, basic ones that operate to form the system of thought. Independently of this, there are, well, totally independently, there are operations that turn it into either sound, sign, even touch, but they're separate. They don't enter into the generation of thought. That's pretty much how things look now, to me at least. What is the Chomsky hierarchy, these uh, set of four kind of formal grammars that are nested within each other? Well, that goes back to the 1950s, uh, to an article of mine which was misunderstood then and is still misunderstood today. <laughs> but it was called Three Models for the Description of Language. It appeared in an engineering journal there were no ways to publish in linguistic journals in those days. Uh, the three models were, it's a little hard to describe, but they were based on what are called systems of rewriting rules. So a rule that says uh, uh, NP, meaning noun phrase, can be rewritten as a noun plus an object, a complement, 
picture of Bill, let's say. A lot of rules like that, called rewriting rules. Well, it turns out there are many systems of rewriting rules. There's a universal system, was discovered by a great mathematician, Emil Post, that if you put no constraints on rewriting rules, you just let them work any way you want, you get a universal computation, what are called universal Turing machines. You get all possible computations. So the, uh, the, uh, the unstructured system is essentially a universal computing system. A Turing machine, uh, your computer on your desk with infinite memory, basically. Right. Uh, if you start putting constraints on these, you get systems that look like what you have in language. So if you say that the rewriting of a symbol depends on the symbols next to it, so a symbol can become a noun if it's followed uh, by a certain complement, but not another complement, a verb that's called context-sensitive rules. That's a constraint. If you take another constraint, you say they're rewritten independently, the context, it's called context-free rules. You add some lower constraints, you get what are called finite automata, finite Markov sources. Well, all of that has some interest. For one thing, it was it was believed at the time that language by engineers, mathematicians, most linguists, that language was at the lowest level, finite Markov sources. You could prove that it can't be. There are properties of language are just inconsistent of them. So you have to move to the next higher level, context-free grammars. There's by now a huge theory, mostly in compute, computational, comp, the theory of computational automata, very rich studies of context-free grammars. Context-sensitive grammars, turn out to have very, to be identical with certain well-known kinds of automata. It's, so there's an interesting mathematical theory about this. The paper itself was called three models. The third model that was proposed was transformational grammar. And the point of the paper was to show that all of the rewriting systems are just wrong for language. They can describe phenomena, but they cannot give explanations. If you want to give explanations, you have to have a richer system which abandons rewriting systems altogether. That third part of the paper has been completely ignored. But it was the point of the paper to show that, the, that if you want to do real science, you're going to have to move from description to explanation. That was just so unthinkable that it's disappeared. <laughs> that's what the paper was about. And that's, I think, what we should be concerned with. So the hierarchy is mathematically interesting, has some linguistic applications, uh, like, for example, throwing out the standard beliefs about finite automata and Markov sources, uh, but it's basically not language because it does not yield the system, the operation. It does not include the mechanisms involved in true explanation. And that's where the science of language should begin, just as biological science begins when you go beyond description of what there is to explanation of why it's that way and not some other way. 
as I read the the literature, um, and and it, it, I'm going to deliberately oversimplify it to, uh, uh, to 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 get at the real issue. Uh, there seems to be um, a tension between those who believe that syntax is completely independent of meaning, and those who would believe that the the meaning of a sentence is derived from its syntax versus those who say the opposite, that the syntax is derived from its meaning. And you would obviously be positioned in the former camp where syntax yields its meaning. This is the simplification. Uh, and generative uh, semanticists, for example, would argue that the syntax is derived from meaning. So what, what, what can you tell me to straighten me out about, about these two different positions? These are two different forms of syntax. Generative semantics, which is a possible position. In fact, I suggested it long before it developed as an option, argues that the deep structure spells out the entire meaning. So in the cases I mentioned, say, many books were stolen from the library, there'd be a deep structure which spells out the entire meaning of that. And then there are rules that take it down to the actual form. That's a possible view. It's wrong, it collapsed under its own weight because it just was totally unfeasible. The rules got insane, you know, so crazy and complex that they were thrown out. Well, that was the end of generative semantics. It was a possible reasonable position, just didn't work. Uh, what worked is uh, the kinds of things I've described. But that's just a discussion of uh, different forms of syntax. That's all. It's all mm -hmm. syntax. In fact, what's called semantics these days is syntax. Oh. It's very likely that language simply has no semantics in the, in the technical sense of Frege, Tarski, Carnap, one, and so on. Mm. Notice that in, in that sense, that sense is captured by the titles of books, like word and object, and words and things. Now, the idea that words pick out entities in the extramental world. The word cat picks out those furry things out there. Uh, the word river picks out that object you cross when you go to work. You know? Language just doesn't work like that. This was already understood in classical Greece. Uh, no time to go into it, but the words of language just don't pick, pick out extramental things. Now, there's a lot of work in what's called semantics, but it's actually syntax. It's working out. So, for example, suppose you do model what's called model theoretic semantics. You pick, which is a standard approach, you pick elements, which you call elements of the model, but those are mental elements. They're not things in the world. Then you carry out operations on these things, interesting operations, find out a lot about quantifiers and so on. So pure syntax, you're working with symbolic objects. Connection to the world is not by reference and denotation. It's by what John Austin called speech acts. It's by, so there's a different, one of the acts is referring. You can refer to a cat, that's an action. 
doesn't mean the word cat has a relation uh, to the extramental entity cat. It doesn't. That's not how language relates to the world. Huge issues there. Mm. So I think we're coming, at least I think we should be coming to understand. In fact, the things that we refer to can't even exist. I suppose you take a simple sentence like, uh, uh, he's pushing an open door, has a metaphorical meaning, also has a literal meaning. He's pushing the open door. Think about it for a second. The door that he's pushing is something physical, but an open door is a complex abstraction. Mm -hmm. It's not a physical thing. You try to spell out what an open door is, pretty complicated. All sorts of things enter. But one word refers to both of them. Uh, suppose I say, uh, this book is easier to burn than to understand. Finnegan's Wake. It's easier to burn than to understand. Well, burning it means it's a physical object. Understanding it means it's some abstract thing. But the word, it's one word, not picking out an object in the world, it's picking out some complex abstraction. Every word works like that, including cat, tree, person, book, anything you want. So very likely language just doesn't have somatics in the technical sense has meaning, but meaning is just some broad, loose thing. We don't know what that is. And the, the only position that seems to remain coherent is that there's a syntactic system, generates structures. These are basically thoughts. They're used in various ways by other cognitive systems, systems of action, and so on. That gives meaning. Next, in part three of Closer to Truth's four-part interview of Professor Noam Chomsky, we discuss the implications of his linguistic theories, especially universal grammar, for human sentience, cognition, evolution, and uniqueness. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.